Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Good to be here with you today. I'm learning daily to enjoy the sun and two hours of outdoor exercise. Along with other Melburnians, we're cautiously embracing the new normal, still obviously very masked up. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wawandri people of the Kulin Nation. Here, where their sovereignty was never ceded, I'd like to pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. On today's show, residents in the Yarra Ranges are turning midnight into a literary act with bright pink stickers featuring haiku written by local residents uh, being stuck on the sides of rubbish bins and also some of the rubbish trucks. Uh, It's all part of Hashtag put out your poetry, a council initiative to support the local arts. And Yarra Rangers poet and novelist Leah Hills, who has created a short film to help people in her community express themselves through the project and understand the art of haiku, will be joining me later in the hour. That's uh, Leah Hills from the Yarra Rangers. But first, author and co host of the First Time podcast, a show about first-time authors, Kate Mildenhall joins me to talk about her second novel, The Mother Fault, a dystopian thriller following a woman who is thrust into danger when her husband goes missing under suspicious circumstances. Mim, with her two young kids, must flee the sinister department officials and make a perilous voyage from the outback to an uncertain future. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. What do you mean missing, she had said, when the phone call had come this afternoon. She had been distracted with the kids tumbling their bags in the door ahead of her, trying to get her earplugs in to hear the call properly. It appears Mr Elliot has disappeared from the mine site at Golden Ark. Geotech has confirmed this with us. That's a small excerpt from Kate Mildenhall's The Mother Fault, a dystopian thriller following Mim and her two kids thrust into danger when Mim's husband Ben goes missing under suspicious circumstances. Soon Mim must flee the sinister department officials and make a perilous voyage from the outback to an uncertain future. Author Kate Mildenhall, one of the co-hosts of the First Time Podcast, a show about first-time authors, joins me now to talk about her second book. Kate, welcome to Backstory. Well, look, uh, this is, uh, I kind of, it's a little bit cheeky of me to introduce you as the co-host as well of the uh, First Time Podcast, because this is in fact your second book. Um, So perhaps that's a good place to start. It is sadly a bit of a trope uh, of the uh, writing world that second novels are infamously difficult uh, to to kind of launch. This is a a cracker of a second novel, but I would love to to know what your feelings are as something of an expert on first time writing. (laughs) I would say. 
Thank you, Mel. Um, it, you know, the podcast has been wonderful for looking at the first-time experience, but yes, you're so right. Second times are notoriously hard, and this one was so much harder than my first book. It took me twice as long, and, um, you know, writing historical fiction for my first was so easy because I just, like, followed the, the skeleton of a true story, and this I got to make up, and it just meant that it was infinitely harder. <laughs> Now, look, it's, it was really interesting, as I'm sure, uh, as I'm sure you've kind of um, felt or heard already, to be reading a book about a sort of uh, dystopian Australia, if you like, that is run by a quite kind of um, dictatorially type regime that is using uh, embedded microchips to control people, among other things. Uh, we are in a time when people are sort of <laughs> seeing the natural government protections, which I would say are not at all what you're describing. Um, but it, it's sort of a really interesting sort of mindset to be reading this in, where we are accepting a certain le- level of control for our own safety. Um, how can these kinds of uh, protections being misused in uh, in different circumstances is a really interesting question. Has that been kind of occurring to you a lot more now that you're oh. also living through this regime? <laughs> it's been completely, completely surreal, Mel. And, you know, like, obviously I started writing this book four years ago, so I was doing my research on um, dictatorships and governments around the world, not here, that use surveillance as you know, as as a weapon or as a strategy of of kind of um, ensuring that people comply with their demands. And then to come into this year and just suddenly, like there's sections of the book that, you know, that say we're all in this together and, you know, these kind of ideas about society just um, spinning to suddenly be really obedient towards the government in a place where I think we're not naturally kind of that way. So that's been odd, but, but... you know, the whole time, I think I just kept thinking, uh, while I was writing, I was thinking, how would I deal with this situation? And now we're in here dealing with it. It's just, yeah, utterly surreal. It is really surreal. And it's a sort of, it raises questions, doesn't it? When, um, when we should start to get worried about certain government control and when we should actually see it as a valid act to, to protect people. And I think these questions are really worth always asking. Um, obviously I very much believe that, that there are justified, um, government restrictions at the moment, but were they to extend beyond, uh, what it is that we're going on, it would be a very worrying situation. I guess the people in the story that you've created really have have just accepted a lot of things through convenience or through what seems to be helpful. Where did you feel like the tipping point was for your characters? Ah, oh, that's such a great question. I think that um, for for Mim, the the threat which is used throughout the world and is used in Australia as well um, of having your children removed from you is the the one that tips her over the edge. Um, and I think that that kind of slippage is is the place that I'm interested in, where we where we suddenly go from just um, accepting that this is the way things are to suddenly questioning. Hang on a second, moment panic now or should I be questioning this and I think it's a really interesting time to be releasing this book because we are in this this kind of discussion of okay this is okay for my government to do or for the police force to do but maybe this thing over here isn't um or it's okay for me because I'm (laughs) you know a white kind of cis privileged woman but it's not okay for someone else who's more vulnerable so I think that that line is the one that I was really interested in um in looking at. 
Yeah, we certainly had that uh, here in in Melbourne with the um, the Flemington flat situation, where there were certainly things put into effect that did not seem to be at all okay <laughs> in the yep. way that they were delivered and in the effects that they had on people, especially in uh, in a kind of public health crisis. So there have already been questions raised, and I think that there will be in in retrospect a lot of a lot of things that will be you know this will be seen as a time when everything was certainly not done in in the best possible way um so this is you know i guess i guess these are always questions we should raise one thing i do want to ask you and and i you know as i was reading the book i couldn't help feeling like this was a kind of um you know veiled uh book about our own treatment of asylum seekers uh it really does flip the narrative in this sense because i don't think it's giving too much away to say that there is a sea voyage in this story but it is someone trying to escape australia as as a, a refugee in a sense and you know mel that's exactly where i started and in fact since um the book's been published i've Alice Robinson, who wrote the wonderful uh, The Glad Shout, and I have talked about this, didn't know each other before, but um, were kind of writing at the same time, had young children, were both enraged by um, the way that our government was treating asylum seekers and trying to work out a way to uh, to look at that and examine that in, in fiction in a way that was appropriate and res- respectful. And, and I suppose, yeah, the question that I asked constantly was, what would I do in this situation? And the fact that also, Mel, having young kids when I was writing was at times so frustrating and, um, you know, uh, just kind of beyond the the pale of what I could deal with, and yet thinking about women who <laughs> were dragging them along with them as they tried to kind of save their lives. So that's the tension that I was really interested in uh, in the beginning, and you know has been uh, really odd again to be in remote learning and, and lockdown with my kids at the same time as <laughs> watching this book. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author Kate Meldenhall about her book, The Mother Fault. Uh, just to kind of pick up again on this idea of sort of reversing uh, the the kind of refugee narrative, in a sense of making um, the the kind of Australian, the person who was trying to escape to another place, it did kind of occur to me that actually uh, it is impossible to kind of really flip the narrative in a complete way because I think people, you know, because of the nature of of the world and colonialism, uh, people coming from Australia have natural advantages still in the world. And it did sort of occur to me that it would be very difficult to try to emulate an experience that people are having in the other direction. Were you kind of grappling with some of those things while you were writing this narrative as well? Yeah, absolutely. And in the end, you know, one of the things I, I started with this very kind of uh, high hopes of, of writing an allegory about asylum seeking, and exactly for the reason that you just said, I just realised it, it didn't really work. Um, what I what I wanted to do was to look at a situation, and I've got um, a piece of um, Omar Musa's poem um, above my desk, which says, just because there was no gun, mean you were not forced to leave, and I wanted to look at, at, at where the pushing point was um, to leave Australia. I mean, lots of women run in Australia from different situations, and I wanted to look at, at how you might do that, how you could disappear if you were trying to keep creep your family safe. But of course, Mim in the story disappears, you know, on, on a yacht um, with just, um, you know, one guy to sail her and her children and she does have cash with her and she has all those advantages. So it was trying to work out a way that was plausible and, and Australia, a near future Australia that was plausible to try and um, 
push her to leave and I wanted her originally I was going to get her just to leave for a personal reason and in the end I decided no it has to be a, a whole kind of social reason and that uh, posed its own <laughs> imaginary problems for me as I as I went along. I think a lot of the plausibility of your book really rests on something similar in fact to Alice Robinson in The Glad Shout and that is that the relationships and the the characters are really well developed and really well written. I felt very much like this had that tone of realist fiction about it in in that sense how did you go about really kind of uh writing those relationships in the book i wanted to um make sure that mim was as close to what i understood the kind of um women in my life to be like so she's deeply flawed she's frustrated she's kind of resentful of the life that she's living um raising two kids she's had to step out of her career um i could draw on lots of lots of my own personal experience for that one but also from the kind of stories I was reading and and the conversations I was having around me um the kids were a joy to write because I got to (laughs) I got to write in the frustrations and the joys of my own life as well um and you know and they had to be there on every page the the two um got men in the book um Nick who's an and kind of ex-lover who comes in um to to help Mim and and obviously the husband they don't spend as much time on the page but I needed it to be for readers to go with me that actually Mim would cross the continent and get on a boat to to try and find her husband and so that that, that kind of um oh the problems that the depth of the relationship in a marriage, the realisation that you really need the other person to help you parent and help you go about your life as well was something that I, I, I really wanted to, to get across, as well as that kind of fizzing energy and remembering um, kind of youthful love and desire and the power in that as well. Yeah, I think I really noticed that you use a lot of slippage in time, sort of talking about past events to really build up a backstory for the family. You also use sibling relationships or adult sibling relationships and um, adult child um, mother-daughter relationship to sort of really also flesh out this idea of the characters as well. In fact, I would say that, you know, for a book that kind of whips along, there is quite a lot of it that's really spent building this up. How do you balance that to create a sense of sort of, you know, drama and drive the narrative forward at the same time as really developing these kind of rich character connections? Well, about, you know, 80,000 drafts is, is one way of doing it. I did have um, some incredible mentors on board for, for writing this. So Charlotte Wood um, was on board with me for the middle section. And I think that the iterative process of going through and realising that I wanted to write this kind of thriller, page-turning book, like that's that's what I, I really wanted to write. But at the same time, I wanted to write literary realism. And, and so I knew that both things were really important. And um, I think stripping back as I went, so, so I had lots and lots of character work and I had lots and lots of action and I just kind of had to strip back as I went as well. That relationship... I think between um, Mim and Essie is so her daughter is uh, is so central, and it was you know a real joy to write. And when I realised that that was kind of the central relationship that I I wanted to look at, um, that made it a bit easier too. I thought it was a really interesting relationship as well because it's actually grappling with a lot of things that I think people are grappling with now, which is when you're in a quite extreme situation, how much of the truth do you share with the child? And Essie is that perfect character because she's very cluey, she smells a rat as soon as there is one to smell, and she just picks up on it and she really demands an answer. So your, you know, central character is always grappling with that. 
I think there's that idea, um, you know, that the children, I think it's a um, Morris Sendak, quote, you know, the children always know. Like, we try and protect the kids from all this big stuff that's going on, but they know, and and you're right, it's, it's something to think about at the moment with, with COVID. The kids have got such a, a concept of it in their head, as well as sensing our anxiety about it, about it all the time. Um, so I wanted to make the kids knowing, and I wanted to make them really fully fleshed out characters, because they had to be on every page, because Mina is, is the sole carer for them during the book. So, you know, I really, that was a technical challenge, but one that, that I really enjoyed as well. Mm. Uh, there is one one final thing I'd sort of like to ask you before we completely run out of time, and that is just to come back to your other role as a uh, podcast co-host um, around the First Time podcast. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of things that you have learned about embarking on a book? Uh, oh. Have you gained anything from talking to your guests and is there anything you'd like to share with listeners who might be trying to grapple with their first ever novel? Oh, my gosh, Mel, it's such a good question. And, you know, it's an utter joy to work on, on the podcast and really Catherine and I have just basically set it up so that we get to fan out about writers that we want to talk to. It's been like a, a masterclass, honestly, and I think the biggest thing I've learned is that Everyone does it so differently, um, and and that is certainly at times during the writing of this book when things kind of fell over for me and I, I didn't know how I was going to pick it up again. To be able to go back and think, hang on a second, like these really impressive writers who we've interviewed had moments when they had books rejected or, you know, books fell down and, and they got back up and they kept on going. So I think that's been the, the, the joy of it, to listen to all the different ways that, that people get their writing out into the world. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kate Mildenhall, uh, to talk about your incredible book. Thank you so much, Mel. That was uh, Kate Mildenhall, author of The Mother Fault, her second novel, which is out now through Simon and Schuster. Coming up next, uh, there is a, a wonderful initiative that's being started by the Yarra Rangers with residents adorning their bins with haiku. Uh, poet Leah Hills join me very, very soon to talk about hashtag put out your poetry. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, my school work is done, but stage four means no play dates. I FaceTime my friends. That's a poem by Jasmine Giardini, a Yarra Rangers resident, one of many turning bin night into a literary act with bright pink stickers featuring haiku written by locals stuck on the sides of rubbish bins and some of the rubbish trucks. It's all part of Put Out Your Poetry, an initiative of the local council. Yarra Rangers poet and novelist Leah Hills, who has created a short film to help people in her community to express themselves through the project and understand the art of haiku, joins me on the line now to talk about the initiative. Leah, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I was quite intrigued by this uh, by this whole initiative, and I know you are very much involved in explaining what uh, haiku is all about. Can you talk talk about the initiative and, and where it's come from? Yeah, well, um, right. At, I guess right at the beginning, um, I was um, talking with some some of the people at the council about um, some possible 
um, arts responses to you know to what's been happening with lockdown and with the with the pandemic and talked about because I've worked a lot in um, haiku and was talking about how that might um, you know sort of translate over into a you know a project that the community could get involved in. So um, I, what I did was put together a video uh, that explains how to write haiku and uh, I worked with my son who's an emerging filmmaker and we put together with this you know with with, with these explanations and with images and that's accessible on the Arrangers website so um, anybody can have a look at that and it can help them with the writing of the haiku uh, can also be used in classrooms for you know for teachers as a resource um, and then yeah it sort of grew from there and uh, Greenbox is the um, who's the manager of Creative Communities, sort of rang me and had a bit of a chat about this idea that he'd uh, discussed with J.J. Richards and Sons, who, who run all the bins, uh, the, the rubbish trucks uh, around the Yarra Ranges, and about the possibility of then, you know, this could be a kind of an open gallery where they could be seen on the rubbish trucks and then on the bins with, you know, members of the community connecting in and writing poetry and putting them out on the bins. So, yeah, that's kind of the process that's occurred. <laughs> I kind of love this because, I mean, there's nothing more democratising than a bin, I guess. Yeah, Everyone absolutely. has one. We, we think of it as, a you know, an item where we put things that are unwanted. But I love this idea of, of you know, really rethinking it and and making this a kind of uh, a communication tool, which, let's be honest, people yeah. have used bins to communicate things in their neighbourhood. More Quite often it's, it's uh, you know, sticking a sign up on the bin to say, can you please not dump things or things like that. <laughs> But I love that Absolutely. this is is really changing the idea of poetry being something that um, that only a few people read or that somehow elitist in some way. It's really yeah. making it a democratic act. Yeah, absolutely. It's putting it out there for everybody in a way that's kind of a little bit cheeky in a way, you know, because we do, like, we do think of poetry as being sort of relegated to old books or, you know, it's wonderful to have it out there in a very public space. And in a way, like, I, I literally, just before you called, my uh, local rubbish truck came past to pick up my bin. My neighbour was out there collecting her bin, so, so I, you know, it's one of the few times I actually see my neighbour, so it's going to be great when our whole street has poetry in it and it's just going to be a talking point and it's just a way of you know really connecting and everyone can have a go because we're talking about three lines you know we're not we're not talking about a, a complicated poetic form there's the video there to kind of guide you through and we've been getting just you know a wonderful collection um, of poems coming through and you know some are more traditional haiku and others are people just expressing themselves through that kind of that three line format like really you know um, boiling down the idea of what they're experiencing into, into those three lines. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's open for everybody. Absolutely. There's a, I, I want to read a few of these, actually. This is one by Fatula Reynolds. Lemons on the tree, a nighttime curfew, hills folk bake and sing. Uh, and this one by Vicky Thornton. Grandson born in lockdown, mother sends me photos, my arms still empty. That's incredibly touching. Um, yeah, beautiful. I, I'm reading these actually from the Yarra Rangers uh, website. That's yarrarangers.vic.gov.au. There is actually a gallery up. But I really want to I, I ask a, a few more questions, Leah, about actually mm. um, the kinds of things if people do want to get involved or even if, if they're not in the Yarra Rangers and they just want to have a go at expressing themselves through haiku, how would you advise them to go about writing uh, a piece like this? Yeah, well, um, 
probably saying it quite a few times, but I would guide them to towards the video because it does give a, a really kind of nice outline and I go through, you know, step by step how to actually write different forms of haiku. So it's, you know, um, explained quite nicely there. Um, but what's really key, I guess, to a haiku is that it's usually really simple language, but it, it has, a, has a deeper meaning behind it. So, um, you know, it, it contains often like one image or a couple of images that are somehow connected. And a, a really key thing to haiku is it's sort of capturing a moment in time. So you could even, you know, imagine seeing that like with, with Vicky's haiku that you, you just you read out there. You know, you, you can imagine her sitting there with the photos but her arms still empty. You can really visualize it. But at the same time, behind that quite simple image, you know, is a sort of a deep emotional um, meaning that we can all, you know, connect to in some way or another. So it's really about capturing that moment in time. And what's beautiful about this sort of whole process, especially, you know, when, when we're in lockdown, and in a way it's it's helping you to connect to the space that you're in and see a sort of a deeper meaning to, to what you're experiencing. Uh, and also, I mean, it can really lend itself to humour as well. So it can be a great way to sort of process what we're going through. Um, by just sort of distilling it into into these moments. And, you know, moments of stillness are important uh, because it can be quite a chaotic time. Even if you're not sort of that busy at home, there's so much information hitting you about what's going on. And this is just a, a moment of stillness. And I find that if I sit down for 10 minutes or when I go for a walk and my, one of my local, we're very lucky here, we've got these, you know, beautiful reserves and national parks. All, I'm surrounded by them in the Yarra Ranges. Um, when you go for a walk and if you spend a moment sort of just, you know, I sometimes just spend 10 minutes so I'm just sort of writing haiku in my head. When you get into that space, it's very meditative and you come out the other side just feeling, you know, a lot more a lot more settled and connected to the place you're in and, you know, and able to, to deal with what's going on. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to a Yarra Rangers poet and novelist Leah Hills uh, who has created a short film to help people in her community express themselves through a council project uh, which is using the hashtag Put Out Your Poetry, um, which is all about creating haiku that will be stuck on bins and on the sides of rubbish trucks. How is that actually going to be achieved? Are people getting sent out stickers to put on the bins? Um, How is it all happening? Yeah, so if you go onto the website, um, unfortunately you have to be um, part of the Arrow Rangers to actually receive the stickers. But, you know, you can send in your haiku anyway if you're coming from somewhere else. But, if um, yeah, so if you're from the Arrow Rangers and you go in and put in um, your submission, then uh, the, the your haiku will be printed and sent back to you and then you can stick them on the bin. And they're free of charge, but if, if you'd like, you can make a donation to Support Act, which is a really important um, charity that's, that's helping, you know, a lot of people in the music industry who've been really hard hit uh, by, by COVID and the closure of so many venues. So, you know, there's a that's a, a wonderful aspect of the project as well. And it's, you know, and it's a reminder that, you know, we're in a time where you know, people are really consuming a lot of art and, you know, they're watching TV and listening listening to music and things, in this, you know, during this, this time of lockdown. But there are a lot of artists out there that are, you know, have been really struggling through this period. So it's a nice little reminder of that. And, you know, we don't have these galleries at the moment. We can visit. We can't go to public poetry readings but we've got this poetry you know that's out there and it's got its its public place so yeah it's an important aspect of it too going to read a few more this is sarah stewart mm-hmm. walk to the drive's end looking for signs of others sit on the big rock 
Schoolwork on the floor, another day's light fading fast, teenager in bed on their phone. That's by Lisa Dalboni. Have you found um, looking through these, uh, have, have you been surprised, in fact, Leah, by, by some of the imagery that's been coming out through this haiku? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's such a, a beautiful range. I mean, it's people obviously processing the, the whole isolation process. Oh, I'm getting a bit of feedback there. Are you, it's all right? It sounds all right? Uh, I can hear you perfectly. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there's been that sort of thing, but we've got this also people really focusing on their local environment, which I think is really lovely to see coming through because that's such an important part, I think, of how we cope with this uh, situation is, you know, that little time, which, you know, thankfully has been increased to two hours this week, when we can go out and really, you know, reconnect with the local environment and realise how important it is to us, you know, through through this particular time. So it's lovely to see those images coming through as well. And, and obviously some of them are coming through from kids, which is lovely to see them getting involved in the project. Yeah, that was something that really that I really found quite moving is that there are quite a few here by children. Um, here's mm. one by Ray Helen Fissenden. I don't think this is a child. Um, hands moving slowly, deafening silence at last wine o'clock, which is something I'm afraid um, many of us, including myself, can relate to. Um, this is by Cliff Overton. All along the street, whispers of what week it is. The lids hold the code. Uh, and I'll maybe read one more. Uh, Frisia's dancing in front of my big window, feeling joy and fun. And that's by Rishaba Chowdhury. These are really lovely. So so people, do people have to be from the Yarra Rangers to actually submit uh, these haiku or can anyone submit them but just people in the Yarra Rangers can use the stickers? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they can they can submit them. We you know we want people to get involved, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the, the stickers and uh, the rubbish bins, uh, uh, the going on the bins and on the trucks, yeah, it's people from the local community, from the Rangers community, which is a very broad community. I mean, we stretch from Upway all the way across to Hillsville and Warburton, so it's a, yeah, it's a very large community, but it's going to be wonderful having poetry going out on the bins right across the Yarra Rangers. I really do. I really do love that. And I think, you know, if you're out for a walk first thing in the morning to kind of come past and pause and take a look at um, at people's bins is a nice little moment of connection, I'm sure. Um, that, Absolutely. You know, maybe you can respond in poetic form uh, via the website as well. Well, Leah Hills, yeah. thank you so much uh, for joining me today to talk about this really quite lovely initiative. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, that was Leah Hills, who is a poet and novelist um, in the Yarra Rangers. Uh, she's part of an initiative that is encouraging people in the community to write haiku that will then be stuck on rubbish bins um, and on the sides of rubbish trucks. I mean, it, it kind of does put a whole new spin on the idea of rubbish poetry uh, and uh, it is not at all rubbish. It's pretty, pretty lovely. That is kind of very close to all we have time for today on the show. I would like to thank my guests, uh, of course, Leah Hills of the Yarra Rangers and uh, Kate Milden Hall, uh, author of the recent book, The Mother Fault, out now through Simon and Schuster. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.
Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.